You know, when you think about it in the scripture, as we began last week, we said that man throughout scripture is presented with a choice, a choice to follow in obedience, a choice that some would take towards the path of disobedience, and that was made known to us through many scriptures, but perhaps maybe the most profound scripture of them all is the one by the Lord Jesus Christ in his magnificent sermon on the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gates. He said, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And Jesus said, many are those who enter by it. And then he said, for the gate is small and the way is narrow and it leads to life. And few of those, or he said, few actually are those who find it. So our Lord told us that following the life of Christ would not be easy. In fact, in that masterful sermon, there were two gates that he spoke about. One was broad and another one was narrow. He spoke of two teachers. There were false teachers in Matthew 7 and there were true teachers. He spoke of two claims. Some people only spoke verbally of their faith. Other people lived in obedience to their faith. He spoke of two foundations. One was rock and another was sand. He spoke of it bringing the individual to two roads that one pursues on that leads to two destinations. One of those is heaven, one of those is hell, one of those is life, and one of those is death. And so we're confronted in the scripture between that which is true and that which is false. I mean, how can you tell a real disciple from a false one? I grew up with a young man who was my friend. We were friends in high school. We went to the same church together. We served in the same high school group together. He was at all the things at the church that I was at. We, we grew up together. He was in my home. I can remember times where we would swim together. We didn't have a kind of a built-in pool. We used to call him a, a doughboy pool, an above-the-ground pool, and we'd be in there for countless hours, myself and my brother and this man and his brother. This man, I would tell you, was a spiritual leader in the life of the church. It's interesting, not only was he a spiritual leader in the high school group, he would have told you that he was a spiritual leader in the church. He would have also said that he was the most spiritual guy in the life of the whole youth group. And add to that, he wasn't just a a simple man. He was a philosopher. He followed Francis Schaeffer and followed him and knew certain truths and, and did all those things. But as time began to go, this young man went to Bible school at that church. He was still around everything, but some things began to pop up into his life that you just couldn't be sure of anymore. All the people he began to know, he owed them all money. And he began to use fabrication to extract money out of those people whom he was close to. Then all of a sudden he defected and we never really saw him again. We had heard that he had some trouble, but he never showed himself until we saw him on TV as he was about to enter into jail for a number of years, 
for many different crimes. And he went to jail and there he became a notorious person in jail as well. But I've often looked back and I thought, well, what, what happened to that guy? I mean, he's right with us. He would have been singing with us today. He'd be in maybe even in the Sunday school class at nine. In fact, he might have even been a guy that would be teaching potentially. But something happened along the way, and he just, I don't, for the sake of a word, just defected. That which he held to is that which he let go of. And I've never really forgotten the, the man. Never really forgotten who he was when he was young. Never forgotten who he became later some time ago. But it, it, it was remarkable to me as we come to this text in Scripture because the question that Jesus is going to raise and pose, just as I read in the Sermon on the Mount, there's going to be two responses to the bread of life. And your response to the teaching of the bread of life will reap an eternal destiny. How can you tell a real disciple from a false disciple? Let me read the text to you, okay? And we begin it last week, and then let's finish chapter 6 this morning. But in John chapter 6, I'll begin at verse 60, and we'll read through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll dive into the word. Father, would it be that you be our teacher this day by your spirit. Send your word out into each of our hearts. Lord, I am fully dependent on you. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray that it might go out in all power. And we know the promise of the scripture is that it will never return void. So, Father, accomplish your work by your spirit through the word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we walk into this context, and as you think about the people whom you know, I just told you in my mind, even this morning, so many more came into my own mind about people who were part of us. And then as John said, 1 John 2, 19, they went away from us for they were not really of us. But as you think about your own life and you think about the community in which we live, I want to draw you to an important distinction in the context here. Because in Scripture, there are false disciples and there are true disciples. As we've been walking through John chapter 6, we've seen the, the focus of the, the Jewish people and even the Gentile in many ways in their own belief, unbelief. But what's unique as we come to chapter 
6 and verse 60 down through 71, it's not the Jewish people who are only grumbling and complaining about his statement. It's actually the people who are believers. In fact, or they would say they're believers. In fact, look at verse 60. It says there, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Okay. Verse 61, but Jesus knowing in himself that his, here's the key, his disciples were grumbling about this. It's his disciples. Look down in your Bible in verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus, verse 67, said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? In other words, you can see from the printed page, from Scripture itself, there are those who call themselves disciples, but very clearly, some are false. They walk away and no longer walk with him. And then Peter gives the expression of those who are true and says, Lord, to whom would we go? And really, mankind can be divided into those two responses. And so I begin by asking you this question. What are the distinctions of a true and false disciple? What should we look for in a true disciple? What are the marks of a false disciple? Well, to answer that question, this text will help us, and you've come to the right place and the right passage. So as we walk through John 6, 60, verse through, through verse 71, there are two responses to Christ's teaching on the bread of life. And one of these two responses will reveal the eternal destiny of every believer. And so I ask that question of you and to equip you as well. Are you a true disciple or are you a false disciple? Now we begin to look last week, and I didn't quite finish at the first response. The first response, this is the first, there's two of them, but the first response was the unbelief of false disciples. And we said last week that those false disciples are marked by three realities. We said, number one, the false disciples are marked here in that they stop listening to him. They stop listening to him. Do you remember in verse 60, look down, when many of the disciples, watch this, heard it, stop there for a second, heard what? Heard that he said in the previous text, to eat my flesh, drink my blood, when he spoke of his death on the cross, when he spoke of his blood being shed, and when he spoke of appropriating that and him by faith, when they heard this, it says in verse 16, 60, excuse me, they said, this is a hard saying. And remember, we said that that doesn't mean that it was hard to understand. The thought is, is it's hard to accept. Skloros is the word in Greek. The ideal of hard, stiff is the thoughts. And they couldn't accept it. And so it says in verse 61 that they were grumbling about this. In other words, we can't accept this. And we noted there that number one, what marks a false disciple is they stop listening to him. Secondly, they stop believing in him. You say, well, in what sense? Look at verse 61. But knowing, but Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And that word offense is the ideal of, of uh, stumbling over. It's the ideal of a scandal. Are you scandalized by this? And the truth is, they were. They stopped believing in the Lord Jesus Christ because verse 66 says, 
that his disciples turned their back on him and no longer walked with him. In other words, they stopped altogether believing in the words that he spoke. And then thirdly, we noted, and we left off there, that the false disciples just stopped following him, verse 66. Okay, The crowd, beloved, that wanted to make him a king in 615, the crowd that said that he was a prophet in 614, now defects from him. In fact, in a year's time in which this is written at that point, the Messiah will be lifted up on a cross, forsaken and alone. And so here, he was abandoned, if you will. He was, he was left in 666. And so we put that all together and said spiritual defection is marked by these three things. By a failure to listen to God's word, then you stop believing God's word, then you stop following him all together. And you remember, look down in verse 66, when it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There is a finality to that in the original language. In other words, they just weren't having a difficult time with that sermon. They just stopped walking with him altogether. This is a fascinating text. He's at the height of his popularity. He just fed 5,000 men, which is probably historically fifteen to 20,000 people at that feeding. He was so great that they thought, this is the prophet that's come into the world. This is the king. And he was at the height of his popularity. And then he launches into the discourse on the bread of life. And by the time that he's done with it, here there's spiritual defection in the midst. That's where we left off. But I want to be faithful to the text with you. I don't want to overdo it because we're going to meet some uh, aspects of this in John 13. But there's two key scriptures that follow in this text that reveal the ugly illustration of spiritual defection. I told you about my friend who defected very well. That's a personal illustration. But there's, there's a biblical illustration, an ugly illustration of spiritual defection in the text that we have to recognize. Look at verse 64. He said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And then watch this phrase. And who it was who would, what? Betray him. Who is that? He spoke of Judas. So you meet him in verse 64. Then look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Who would that be? That would be Judas. And he spoke, he, he interpreted it in 71. He spoke of Judas, the son of, of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So there's three verses right here that speak directly to the life of Judas. And he's found here in the text becomes, because he becomes the, the ugly illustration of spiritual defection. Judas, when you think about him, stands forever in our memories as the greatest act of wickedness ever committed in human history. Right? Right? 
It's the greatest act of evil in human history. To think, think about it just for a second. To betray God in the flesh. Judas is a picture of shame. He's a picture of darkness. His privilege to be around Christ was squandered. And his betrayal of Christ, unimaginable. Judas personifies the false disciple. And if we can just take a moment here, I want to look at just three insights that reveal the spiritual defection of Judas so that I could be faithful to the text. And obviously, as we look at Judas, there is a direct word to us as well, is there not? I mean, to be in a place of such great privilege and squander it away is a great tragedy, is it not? To be in a place where you're in the hearing of the Word of God and to, to walk away as Judas did is a, is, a, is a horrific plight. But let me just touch on it. We'll meet him later in John 13. But first, his tarnished name. His tarnished name. You can see it there. His name is revealed in 71. He spoke of Judas. And let me just say there's a couple of things that are revealed in the Gospel of John that are not found in any other Gospel. In verse 70, look at the text. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And you have to recognize that as he chose the twelve, one of the twelve was none other than what? Judas. He was an apostle, as you know. He was listed as an apostle. What's fascinating is, at least as I read, every time his list comes up in the name, or, you know, the list comes up, his name is there, and where is he? He's always last on the list. Think about it. The one who would betray him was one of the number in verse 70. And so he said, did I not choose you? I mean, you almost ask the question, how did he ever get in? I mean, how did Judas pass customs? And the truth is, is that Jesus appointed him. But you'll note that though that's his name, look what Jesus said about him in verse 70. Yet one of you, he calls him the devil, the diabolos. The slanderer is what the word means. And Judas would become a tool to carry out the wicked deed. In fact, glance in your Bible just a few chapters over at John 13. In John 13, it tells us something insightful where he would later betray him. But in John 13 too, do you remember this? It was... Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And during the supper, it says in 13.2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In other words, he became a tool of the devil. The devil put it in his heart. Look down at chapter 13 at verse 27. There it tells us that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, what you are going to do, he said, do quickly. So Judas was the tool that the devil used to give over the Son of Man. Now, when you begin to look at his identification, look back a little bit more at 71 in chapter 6. It says there that he spoke of Judas, who was the son of Simon Iscariot. His name, Judas, just comes from the word Judah. 
And it just means the land of God's people. Some say his name literally means Jehovah leads. But either way, his name is a contrast to what he really was. You'll note that it says there in 71 that he's the son of Simon Iscariot. That's not hard. That's just his family name. His father's name was Simon Iscariot. The, the word Iscariot, it just the widely held view, is that it's a place of his birth. In fact, in the Hebrew, the term just spoke of literally a man of Kerioth. It's a geographical location. It was a little town, if you will, south of Jerusalem. I mean, it's hard to believe, is it not, that 23 miles south of Jerusalem was born, was born a man who would one day sell his soul to the devil for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, Judas is a tragic example of a tarnished name. What an epithet that he had. His name lives forever in infamy. He is also known in the scripture as the son of perdition. And so is tarnished name. But secondly, would you note here in the text, his total betrayal. It just says there of his total betrayal in verse 71, he was going to betray him. And our Lord knew this, did he not? It's fascinating that he selected him, and yet he knew that this one would betray him. It's at least a year before the cross here in John 6, and he knew sovereignly what would happen. He knew sovereignly that he would go to the cross. He knew sovereignly that one would betray him. Look back at chapter 6, verse 64. It says there in 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who, was, who, who those you know, who would believe and who it was who would betray him. God sovereignly knew that. Look over to John chapter 13. Let me show you this. This does not take our Lord by surprise. He not only knows those who would believe, but he knows those who would defect. He knew the one who would betray him. But remember in John chapter 13, in verse 11, as he's washing the disciples' feet, it says very clearly there, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This did not take our Lord by surprise. Look at chapter 13 in verse 18. There, Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you, for I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He knew that. Look all the way over in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, when he's in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this, that while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, as you see those hard statements, if you will, you might even ask the question, is that fair? I mean, is that fair? Was Judas himself chosen to be a traitor? Was he just chosen to be an actor on the stage in the unfolding drama of redemption so God's plan could be fulfilled? I mean, how could God predetermine that Judas would give away the Son of God and yet in some way hold Judas responsible for his deed? Can both be true? 
And my answer would be yes. Both are true. I think this scripture will come up on the screen in Luke 22. Here's what Jesus said. For behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. Can you imagine that at the last Passover? For the Son of Man goes, look at this phrase, as it has been, what? Determined. In other words, that man's going to go as it has been determined, as it has been decreed, as it has been sovereignly declared, and yet you've got to finish the sentence. But woe to that man by whom he is, what? Betrayed. There is a curse pronounced on that man. On the one hand, in God's sovereignty, he determined it to be so, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas becomes the tool, if you will, in the hands of Satan who enters into his heart. And yet from that last statement there, woe to that man, curse be on the man by whom he is betrayed. Amazing. On the one hand, he's determined divine sovereignty. But on the other hand, woe to that man is human responsibility. You say, Pastor, can you explain that? And my answer is no. God is sovereign, and yet man is, what? Responsible. So on the one hand, he was fulfilling Scripture, but on the other hand, he ever waits in that statement, cursed be that man. Look at Mark 14, 21. Woe to that man, similar, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus said it would have been better for that man if he had never been, what? Born. In other words, he bears the responsibility of that. So I say to you, beloved, Judas is not the sad victim as though he were a puppet that was manipulated. He is a guilty criminal who personally delivered Jesus Christ over. He is a tragic example of total betrayal. So here what our Lord is doing is he's showing us the nature of unbelief. He's showing us that that the false disciples don't listen. They don't believe. They stop following. And then he puts an illustration here of Judas. And, I, and we can look at him further, but I thought, is there a motive to why he did what he did? So why would he do that? Well, why would he um, follow the whole time? You say, well, the disciples knew. No, they didn't know. Remember when he said, there's one here at the table who would, betrayable, who would betray me, and he's at the table, and all the disciples said, it is not what? I. Disciples didn't know that. It only became revealed in time. But I take you from his tarnished name to his total betrayal to his treacherous greed. You know what's interesting in John's gospel about Judas? He never said a word in the gospels until Mary broke the perfume bottle and anointed Jesus' feet. Say, where's that? Look over at John chapter 13. Excuse me, John chapter 12. I just want to show it to you. I'll show you the motive here. You say there's a motive? You know, he just turned him in. Well, what's, yeah, he did. But what's the motive? Can you imagine this woman breaking a vial, breaking a perfume bottle, a very expensive bottle of perfume, a very expensive bottle that, that was worth a lot of money. And can you imagine the scene as he's getting ready to be betrayed? Soon all of his disciples would desert from him. Soon in the next hours, he would be wickedly betrayed. And here comes Mary with this perfume bottle and she breaks it, pours it over his feet and then begins to wipe his feet with her hair. 
Look at what it says in 12.3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Stop there just for a second. It looks like he has a good motive. Listen, why waste that on Jesus' feet? Why such the expensive gift? Why such the extravagant gift for him? And it makes it, it, he feigns it as though his motive is right, but his motive isn't right because look at the text. John gives you his commentary on it. Look what it says there in verse 6, 12, 6. He said this, Judas, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a what? A thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Amazing. Say, what's his motive? He's a thief. It's his traitorous greed, if you will. He faked a desire for the poor, but he was really consumed by his own greed. Matthew puts it this way, and I think it comes up here on the screen. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me that I deliver him over to you? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine following Jesus for nearly three years and saying, What are you going to give to me? It's money. He said, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver, just to be clear, that's about a $20 bill in common currency. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to, what, betray him. I mean, he was a traitor guilty of the blackest crime in history, which endured, as one man said, on a hangman's rope. Beloved, if Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew, Judas sold his soul to the devil for $20. Amazing. Do you think the words of Christ ring true? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit what? His soul. He lost everything. You know, it's even just, I don't know, just sketchy. I don't know if that's the word. You think of just what I read. I I can't take you to the the chronology of the passage time-wise. But John 13, after he does what he did, in Matthew 26 that we just looked at. In John 13, he goes back into the upper room, Judas did, after taking the money from the Jewish leadership. He came back, and you know what he did? He blended right in with the disciples as though nothing ever happened. It's unbelievable. And in John chapter 13, Jesus gets a basin, and he washes the disciples' feet including Judas. And so, beloved, if you can go back to that moment, it must have been an incredible picture that the sinless Savior and the supreme hypocrite must have looked at each other in the eye. Judas was lost forever. He, you, you recognize in the Scripture that he committed suicide. What a terrible end to a shameful life. It says in Acts one eighteen, he falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. I mean, it's quite a picture. I I don't want to skip that with you. In John chapter 6, here's a picture, here's a response of unbelief. It's the unbelief of false disciples. They're marked by the fact that they stop listening, they stop believing, 
they stop following. And Judas becomes the ugly illustration of what that looks like. You say, Scott, is, is there hope? Is there another response? And I say, praise God, there is. Look back in John chapter 6. I did not want to leave that there and, and let that stand and send you away. What an encouraging day, right? But, but the text doesn't end there. Because it says, can you see the, the emotion of that by Jesus in verse 66 of chapter 6? After this, after what? After the statement, after the discourse on the bread of life, after the hard sayings of drink my flesh, or you know, drink my blood, eat my flesh. In other words, appropriate me, believe on me, come to me. It says after this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him anymore. But there's a second response. Look at verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, and he puts it in the form of a question. Do you want to go away as well? I mean, what would the 12 do? He asked him a question, and there's some question as to what's the nature of the tone of that question. Was he kind of being sarcastic? Like, hey, you, you might defect on me as well. Are you going to turn your back? Are you going to walk on me? But I can't say that that's what it means. Because in the Greek language, it's a, it's a negative. And whenever you have a, a negative implication there by way of the statement, the, the implied answer is no. So when he asked them in 67, do you also want to go away as well? Do, do you? It, he, he, the answer implied is no. So you say, well, why does he ask it? He asked the question for their sake. I think the 12 or the 11 at least needed to verbalize this. They needed to articulate their desire to follow the Lord. The question is asked for their sake, if you will, not his. And so Peter becomes the spokesman as he does in a lot of text. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. And I, I'm convinced here of what Peter is talking about. So let me just follow that similar outline. If false disciples were marked by a failure to listen, believe, and, and follow, true disciples are marked by the opposite. So here's three Marks of a true disciple. Number one, a true disciple keeps on listening. They keep on listening. You say, well, in what sense? Well, look at the text again. He says in verse 68, Lord. Now, now stop there just for a second because I want to break this passage down. He says curios. Now, sometimes that word is used in the Gospel of John and it just means sir. It could just be a polite address. But other times, Lord is a designation of deity, as you and I would think of it. He's Lord is the thought. In other words, it's describing his deity, and it would seem from the context that Peter is making a declaration of his person, that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is God in the flesh. And then look what Peter says. It fascinates me, and you know this well. He said, to whom shall we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. And I'm convinced that when Peter 
made that statement, he was thinking about what Jesus just said back in verse 63. Look at it back there. He said, it is the Spirit who gives life. He said there, the flesh is no help at all. In other words, it's only the Spirit of God. It's only the the Holy Spirit. It's only the Spirit who can give life. The flesh, in our human flesh, we can't produce our own salvation. It's only the Spirit of God that gives life. Well, very well then, how does the Spirit of God do that? Look again at verse 63. He said there, did Jesus, the words that I have spoken to you are what? Spirit and life. In other words, it's through the word of God that the Holy Spirit brings and imparts new life to believers. The words that I have spoken to you, the message of Christ is what is spirit and life. And we know this from the word of God. It says in John 1.18 that we were brought forth, that we were, if you will, born again by the word of truth. In other words, God has chosen to use his word as the agency to breathe spiritual life into people. That's James 1.18. 1 Peter 1.23 says you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so here, his words impart life. Now, I think that's interesting Because back in verse 60, do you remember it said, when they heard this, what what led to their unbelief was they couldn't, if you will, digest the message of Christ. It was a hard statement. Who can, they said, accept this? That message that they heard to them was offensive. It was repulsive. But beloved, for a true disciple... We not only believe his works, but we also believe his words. And so Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, it's interesting that some people in their mind in our own day have a different picture of Jesus. I mean, they would love Jesus the healer, would they not? They would love Jesus the one who raises the dead. They would love Jesus in our own day to see a child raised from the dead. They would love to see him minister to the diseased and to the handicapped. In Mark's gospel, he went into a whole town and just performed miracles on all those who were sick. People, when he would walk through a town, just wanted to be by a shadow that when a shadow was cast, they were healed. There's many people who want that picture of Jesus today. He feeds the poor. He blesses children. He's popular. He's popular amongst some even today for his works. But GCV, I just want you to recognize something. It is not the works of Christ that offend people. It is not the works of Christ that infuriate people. It's his words. It's his words that alienate people from him. But here, the true believer rather than having it be a difficult statement and stop listening, the true believer is one who listens and believes. Look back at John chapter 5 in verse 24. There you see these statements just for a moment here. Truly I say to you, do you see that there? Whoever hears 
my word and believes him has sent me has eternal life. It's the hearing of the word and the believing. And this is what a true disciple does. Glance down at chapter 5 in verse 46. There Jesus said, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. It's interesting. For he wrote of me. He said, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, that's a negative illustration. But for those who follow Christ, they follow his words. Look over at John chapter 8 in verse 43. In John chapter 8 verse 43. And he said to the Jewish people that he ministered to there, Why do you not understand what I say He said, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. But now glance down at 847. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Listen, all I'm saying here is it's the counterpoint here that the false disciples stop listening to him. But you show me a man, you show me a woman who loves Christ. I'll show you a man, I'll show you a woman, I'll show you a high school student, a junior high student who is hanging on to the words of Christ, who is clinging to the person of Christ, who is submitting underneath that word. In fact, if you will, look over at chapter 10, verse 3. I touched on that last week, but do you remember that? It's just talking about the nature of a true believer. To him, the gatekeeper opens. He's talking about the good shepherd in 10.3. The sheep hear his, what? Voice. They, they hear his word, if you will. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought them out on his own, he goes before them and the sheep Here it is, follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so the true sheep hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Look down at chapter 10 in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep, that's you, that's us, many years later, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my, what? voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd down at 1027. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. Listen, one of the ways you can know you're in Christ, and I suppose in many ways I'm preaching to the choir, is do you just stay on with the Lord? Do you have any other answer? Where would we go? Peter said. He said, for you, Lord, have the words of eternal life, but be sure, at least in my ministry, that at least according to the Southern Baptist movement, and I think you've heard me say this before, that they've lost 80% of their youth in Southern Baptist denomination after graduation at the senior year. And there's big questions as to... To why that is. Well, they get to college. Well, they get away from mom and dad. Well, they just... And the, and the truth is, is that the 80% that they've tracked have never even ended up in, back in the life of the church. Because as long as they were part of it with their family or their friends, they were okay. But when the worries of the world and the desire for other things entered in, Jesus would say it choked the word. I'm convinced that those 80% that have departed were never in Christ. And so this is, but you say a true believer? No, a true believer is going to keep on listening to him. In fact, look over at chapter 12. Here it says again, this is a magnificent 
magnificent statement by our Lord in 1249. He said, For I have not spoken to you on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. This is profound. What to say and what to speak. In other words, when Jesus speaks, the Father is speaking. And it says this in verse 50, And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So if Dom read this morning from John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man may come to the Father but through me, then that's the word there is. There's no other place. There's no other salvation. There's no other voice to listen to. Whether that be science, whether that be religion, whether that be philosophy, whether that be some kind of spiritual guru, there is no other place. There's no other politician. There's no other voice than the one that the Father had sent in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you here that a true disciple, far from stopping and listening to him, a true disciple in John 8, 31, is abiding in him, is listening to his voice, is reading his word, is following his commandments by way of obedience. But there's a second principle there. Not only do true disciples keep listening to his word, but true disciples keep believing in him. They keep believing in him. What do you mean, keep believing in him? Well, they stopped believing in him, do you remember? But go back to John chapter 6 and let me show this to you. They stopped believing in him because in verse 61, they took offense at him. It was the scandal, if you will, of the cross that his death, his flesh, his blood, they, they couldn't take it anymore. And so they stopped believing, not, not here, not this confession by Peter. Look what he said in verse 69. He said, he said, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, just, just for a moment there, I don't usually like to make a big deal about languages and tenses of languages, but I do want to just point one thing out for you. Do you see that there in 69 where it says, we have believed and we have come to know? Those are in what we call the perfect tense. There's different tenses, obviously, in languages. And it's the perfect tense that we've believed, we've come to know. And it conveys the idea of an act that was completed in the past but is carried forward with ongoing results. So what Peter is confessing on behalf of the 11 there is we have believed and we have come to know. We have believed in the past and we have come to know in the past and that belief and that knowing in the past are continuing, if you will, with the same results, with ongoing results. So let me just say it this way. The initial faith of true disciples results in continued devotion and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And maybe that's just the issue of when we talk about spiritual affection. The people that I rub shoulders with that walked away from the Lord, they have nothing to do with the Lord altogether. They're not continuing. They have not come to know. They have not continued to believe. And then look what Peter says of him in verse 69. He says, we've believed, we've come to know. This is an amazing statement, that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, the, the Holy One, there's a couple of profound 
thoughts and its definition. In other words, we know, Peter says, that you are the Holy One. We know that, Jesus, you are the one that has been set apart by God. You're holy. You're the Holy One. You've been set apart. You've been qualified to perform whatever pertains to the office consecrated unto God to us to fulfill that messianic task. In other words, it is a messianic title spoken by Peter about Christ, that you're the Holy One of God. But Isaiah, beloved, uses that term, the Holy One, to describe who? God. It says in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And so this title that was given description to God the Father, Yahweh, in Isaiah 40, 25, is now given to Christ, and it is a title affirming his equality with God. Peter gives the Lord the highest place, the greatest glory, and the greatest title of wonder and awe. Now you see that statement, look down in verse 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? And then he says in 69, You are the Holy One of God. It's parallel to the statement in the other Gospels in Matthew 16, 16, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's parallel to Mark 8, 29. But who do you say that I am when Jesus asked and Peter said that you are the Christ? It's parallel to Luke 9, 20, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. These are momentous confessions of Jesus Christ. I would say it this way. He is more than Moses. He is more than a prophet. He is here the Holy One of God. This is the Messiah. This is the one in John 1.41, the one who Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about. Who is he? He's the Holy One. He is the authoritative, powerful representative of God who's been given the authority to give eternal life. In fact, it's interesting that one of the other places that phrase was used was in Mark 1.24 when the demons pronounced him to be the Holy One of God. They, when they were in his presence, knew who he was. So, beloved, let me just say this to you. Say, what is the true disciple? Well, a true disciple, number one, keeps listening Number two, they keep believing, and what they're believing is that designation of who Jesus is and the affirmation of his person. And finally, they keep, thirdly, following. They walk with him. They keep following. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, go back uh, to verse 68. He says, Lord, to whom shall we, what, go? Where else would we go? To whom? Would we go is the thought. I mean, how could Peter or any true disciple leave his or her blessed master to follow someone else? He is the bread of life. He is the source of eternal life. Where indeed would we go? He is the Messiah. So, beloved, here it is. Here's two responses to Christ's teaching on the bread of life. You've got the unbelief of false disciples. They stop listening to him. They stop believing him. 
they stop following him. And then you have the belief of true disciples. True disciples keep listening to his word. True disciples keep believing, if you will, in his wonder that he's the Holy One of God. And true disciples keep walking with him in obedience that we have nowhere else to go. So one of these two responses reveal the eternal destiny of every single individual. And I just ask you this morning, are you a true disciple or are you a false disciple? That's the question. And I'd ask you, if you're here with me this morning, Scott, I got nowhere else to go. I mean, I don't either. There's no other philosopher. There's no, you're not going to follow any false religion. You're not going to follow materialism. Only Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life. I pray that that's what your heartbeat is. I pray that that's your focus this morning, that you would be of him. You say, well, Scott, how do I tell, though, ultimately? Well, what I said, all that I said. But here's the key. Don't look for perfection. Look for the direction of someone's life. That's what I say. Don't look for one moment, one time. We all stumble, do we not? James says that. We all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. So then what do you look at, Scott? You look at the, not the perfection of your life, but look at the direction of your life. And the truth is, the reason that true believers continue on the path of obedience is because God has chosen us. And as much as we could let go of him, he will never let go of us. And so we continue to follow in obedience to his sovereign call. But if, if you say, but, but Scott, I stumble, I struggle, I, I fall short, yes. And the blood of Christ covers you in his righteousness. But you say, but I, I have a heart for him. I, I want to obey him even though sometimes I can't listen. The fact that your heart wants to obey him is a good thing. You say, but pastor, I continue to fall short of what I want to be, and so do I. Until we get to glory, until we stand before him, until we're face to face, we're in a battle, we're in a boxing match, we're in a race, we're in a war, we're in a track meet, if you will. We buffet our body, we make it our slave. But listen, if you can say this morning that, listen, I'm clinging to Christ, I recognize him, I I read his word, I want to obey him, then he knows where your heart is. So don't look for perfection. Look for the direction of your life. And if you see yourself following the the words of Christ, following the wonder of Christ, making your life consistent with the walk with Christ, then be sure that you have those signs of assurance. But I pray that we would heed this word and obey it.